Welcome to our podcast series, Latinx Activism in the Borderlands. This series puts a spotlight on the advocacy work of Latinx activists at the intersection of faith and the borderlands. I'm your host, Gregory Cuellar, co-founder of Arte de Lagrimas Refugee Artwork Project. Today, I have with us David Jaimes. He's a faith-rooted organizer with Clue clergy and laity united for economic justice. His activism focuses on immigration justice, and he works mainly with immigrant communities in Orange County, California. Thank you for being with us, David Jaimes. Happy to be here. Could you provide just briefly a bit of your faith background and your Latinx context? Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. And um, I, well, I... A, my Latinx context and my and faith context. So, uh, how I identify has actually been an interesting um, uh, story that I'm kind of wrestling through right now. But as I identify is right now as an indigenous uh, descendant from uh, from South America, mainly from the Quechua people in in Peru. So I was born in Lima, Peru. Uh, my parents and were there, and then we immigrated up here towards uh, California when I was a baby. So I crossed the border through Arizona. Um, the story goes, my parents, uh, through a coyote, kind of carried me through two, two days and two nights in the Arizona desert, made it safely in the desert, and we landed in Santana, California, which is where I live now, uh, in Orange County, outside of L.A., but um, from Peru, so I, I identify with uh, as a Peruvian American, as a Latino. Uh, I also identified lately, kind of digging more into some uh, some of my roots, and so I'm, I'm starting to identify as an indigenous person, uh, as as a race, which is uh, different from ethnicity. Um, so uh, that's kind of my origins, kind of where I'm coming from. But I grew up here in the U.S. Uh, those are my identity markers and my faith. I would say this. Um, I grew, I have Pentecostal roots in the Assemblies of God Church. Uh, and those roots come from uh, my grandfather that was uh, Centregor. He gave, uh, he, he was saved when he was younger by a white missionary from Southern California and Assemblies of God missionary. I came to the village where my grandfather was at in Pampas Grande and um, in Ancash in Peru. And uh, through that experience, my grandfather was saved, and he committed himself to the faith. And from then on, his and his whole family, which was my dad and my uncles and aunts, and uh, all our family, kind of gave ourselves not only to the Lord but to continuing the work. I come from a lineage of pastors and evangelists, and and those that have served in the church, both lay and clergy. So grew up as a Pentecostal uh, with the Assemblies of God. Came over here. My my dad uh, studied at Fuller Seminary, and and so did I. I got a. I, I just finished this spring a uh, Master of Arts in Theology from Fuller. Uh, studied also there, uh, not officially, but I, I did most of my uh, did a good amount of my classes in Spanish. I, I was part of the Centro Latino, which is the Hispanic Church Studies program there, and so I was uh, really happy to be a part of that and had to take some classes there and be a part of that's one of the reasons I went to Fuller. So I grew up Pentecostal. I was trained Quaker for a bit. I went to a Quaker Bible college in Kansas called Barclay College. And so I studied Bible and theology there for a couple of years. 
and ha have been with the Friends or the Evangelical Friends Church for about 10 years, but recently made the, the, the move to the United Methodist Church about two years ago, which I'm pursuing ordination with them now. And I'm currently as a community organizer working at Santa Ana United Methodist Church and another and I'm supporting the Spanish ministry, the Latino ministry there, Spanish speaking ministry, as well as another church in Santana uh, Methodist Church, too. So I would say I have Pentecostal roots. I was trained Quaker, but I'm a practicing Methodist now. <laughs> so that's a little bit of my faith story and a little bit of my ethnicity and race. That's a nice broad spectrum that you've been able to move in and out of and bringing us to what your your current role as faith-rooted organizer. How did, mm. how did you come to that role uh, with Clue? Well, with Clue, uh, Clue, I've always kind of been like connected here and there with Clue because they would do a lot of things related to immigration. I'm actually very new to activism. I grew up in the church. My parents are pastors and as a person that grew up in a Pentecostal Latino immigrant church, you know, you don't really do a lot of community engagement, civil engagement, uh, civic duties. We're just, uh, when it comes to that stuff, the Pentecostal churches, well, the ones that I grew up in really were not, one, they moved around a lot. So they're pen, so they're storefront churches that just went from rent to rent. Um, so that kind of was my experience in it as well. So we didn't grind ourselves in a community actually, uh, which was not my experience. Uh, so uh, Clue started doing a lot of the immigration work uh, about, I don't know, six or eight years ago or 10 years ago, maybe even before that. Um, and so I just started being curious and started attending some of the meetings because a lot of my interest was becoming to be more practical in the community. And uh, because I served in immigrant churches, immigrant rights was become, becoming more apparent to me in my faith. Uh, but uh, about last year, about two years ago, I was as I was uh, considering uh, moving into the Methodist Church, there's a strong connection with the Methodist Church here in Southern California and with Clue. And uh, I was approached by Guillermo Torres, which is the director of immigration there at Clue. And uh, he he just uh, he told me that there was a, a position opening in Orange County to do immigration related organizing. Um, I, and I told him I don't have much experience. I've never done anything related to organizing, anything related to press conferences or rallies or marches. I'm just a church boy. You know, I know how to put microphones and guitars and I play the drums or I know I could teach, I could preach, you know, those things. And um, uh, he was very encouraging to me uh, and uh, just told me to consider it. And, and over time, uh, we worked it out and, uh, and I started uh, working with Clue. And I just celebrated one year in October with Clue. And um, it's been a fantastic ride, challenging ride, because uh, uh, the world of organizing or activism or doing immigration work, there's just a whole nother world with all these other people and communities. Uh, and, and it's a lifestyle that, uh, that I have, was not exposed to. And to learn the language, the, the, the way things go, uh, the passion, it's just, it's been, I'm continuing to learn. So I just started working with them about a year ago and um, here and there have been connecting with some of the work, but honestly, it's still learning. Uh, it's really new to me. So as a, as a, as a Christian or as evangelical or as a Pentecostal, like these things are brand new. And especially in the spaces that I'm finding myself in, which is very interfaith, very um, spaces that are not necessarily where Christianity is the central faith, um, or even uh, when it comes to uh, other uh, spaces civically or in the community uh, where it's not 
necessarily uh, where I grew up as a more conservative uh, views of politics, theology, gender, etc. You know, I got to, I had to get used to things like saying my pronouns, how to get used to meeting those outside of the faith, um, etc. So I'm learning a lot. And honestly, I thank God for this experience uh, because there's just so much, there's so much that my faith has helped me uh, in, in the work of activism that I've been doing. You draw um, a distinction between your Pentecostal roots and then moving into the United Methodist uh, denomination is, uh, as that domain for the expression of activism and activist work, advocacy work. But it mm. seems that there were already seeds being planted, even with the Pentecostal background, where you were able to see the issues that were immigrants were facing, perhaps in your ministry context or within the relationships you were having with immigrant communities. Could you describe a bit of not so much the, the distinction between Pentecostalism and United Methodist context, but how all of what is part of your faith uh, development has informed your activism or your engagement with immigration justice. You know, and I think that there, there is a misconception, as you sort of pointed to, in the sense that perhaps we don't think of activism coming out of the Pentecostal tradition or Assembly of God tradition, but you, you still seem to have elements of those traditions in the work that you're doing. And I'm wondering if you could describe a bit of what you still keep present from those areas of, of your Christian formation as part of what the work you do. I mean, it's obvious those who are in mainstream dominant Protestant traditions, when you think of activism to go straight to uh, mainline Protestant traditions as being at the forefront, right? And, and not to locate evangelical or Pentecostal traditions as energetic about issues of, of justice but there's elements that are there within those traditions, uh, the Pentecostal tradition, that I think are, are informative and that could add to the complexity of how the spirit works, how prayer works, how the reading of scripture. There's still something very powerful from those traditions that I think could very much inform activism. I'm wondering if that's the case with you, if you if you still, there's not a clear severing but there's like almost a synergy i would say it's a resurgence i would say mm. in my faith because i'm re i'm actually rediscovering and when you mentioned practices uh what has formed me in the church is actually uh the bases the deep wells that i dig through whenever i do my activism it does come from my local immigrant church experience as a being there and one of the first things that Per, relating to the, the in my work in the immigrant community for immigrant rights is because I, I was part of a church, a Pentecostal church, where we would pray for people to cross the border safely. And we would celebrate when we, they would come. And then we would, we would be the first people to help them get a job, to help them find a place to live, to get them food. We would do primicias. We would uh, sell tamales. We would do what it is. So in a sense, uh, I was already organizing or I was already refugee resettlement or I was already doing the things, some of these uh, things that I'm discovering 
that are are similar in these activist uh, circles. Uh, the local church that I grew up in would always do it. Uh, we would do vigilias or prayer vigils, and in those vigilias, all toda la noche, you know, doing jubilo and going going nuts like we always do. Uh, we would pray these radical prayers that I would that I heard at the hunger strike of Lord, open the borders. Lord, allow my family to come in. Lord, protect us as we drive, you know, because we don't have our licenses. Protect us as we go to pray for there are no raids for us. You know, we would pray these radical prayers that usually would seem like we're going against the law of the land. We're going against, uh, we're hiding in the margins, but we knew that as Pentecostals, those that were um, that we truly believe that the spirit is with us, even spirit in, in the darkest places, knowing that we live in those dark places, we live hidden and clandestine um, realities. We knew that God was with us and we believe that that spirit was with us. And we believe that the spirit was just would embolden us to preach the word as is, as the spirit would embolden us to hide the faces of the police officers when they would drive by us. You know, that the Migra and those green trucks are now white trucks or how ICE right now is is continuing to catch people and deport people. We will pray against that. One of the songs that I remember we grew up in the church is Dios no nos trajo hasta aquí. No? Dios no nos trajo hasta aquí para volver atrás. And so we would, those songs, I use them in rallies. I change it up though. When we goes to the chorus, it goes, aunque gigante se encuentre allá, no, yo nunca temeré. Actually, I would say, aunque agente se encuentra allá, yo nunca temeré. So I would just change that word to change it from a giant, change to an ICE agent. And so I, I would see the reactions of some of the people in the community when I would I would switch that song and I use that because that would kind of it would bring things together. You know, it, their their spiritual uh, imagination would be met with the reality of their lives. And that, what and one of the things as Pentecostal organizers need to know is need, we need to dig into that. We need to not be afraid. If we if we hear stories of uh, of Luther changing pub songs into theology in, in the in the days of Reformation, why can't we as Pentecostals change our jubilo and change and sing them in the streets and bring our panderetas out there? You know, one of the things that gets me excited and gets me rooted even deeper into my faith is knowing that I could apply it outside of the church, outside of the, the conferences and, and the retiros that we have and the vigilias, that we have a new space that we could do it to because we haven't seen that. Perhaps because we're afraid of what people might think. If we, you know, if we start dancing, if we start danzando in the nombre, you know, we get jubilo out there. Um, a lot of us are, are, we know that we're okay with it in the church, but outside of the church is different. And the other taboo thing about be growing up in a Pentecostal church is that is that um, we knew that we couldn't engage the, the the politics around us, even though it affected us all the time. Uh, and we know that another a new generation, my generation, and even the generation before me, uh, we've had to deal with some of those challenges. And finally, this generation, and especially Generation Z, is just completely starting to not just speak up but doing something about it i'm really excited about this next generation because they're actually uh people looking to millennials uh to see what how they're changing church culture and etc but now gen z is just already doing it and and they're not giving anything so yeah. how i draw from what has formed me in the church as a pastor's kid or as a pentecostal as a person of faith has actually helped me you know just like i set up you know, in the park, whenever the, you know, we would get kicked out of a church or kicked out of a property, we didn't pay rent or, 
whatever something happened, you know, we would go to the, to the park and set up, you know, the, the mics and the stands and everything to get the service going is the exact same skills that I needed to put a press conference together outside of Los Angeles uh, ICE office, put the mics, put the stands. It, it, we have the skills, but the, the, problem, the, the problem is that no one has actually walked me and said that this is how you do it. Mm -hmm. We've seen that in Protestant circles and in mainline churches. We've seen it in Catholic circles. But we, but there hasn't been, you know, uh, hasn't really been that example. But there have been people, as some people have quoted, quote, uh, court evangelicals that have been in these spaces uh, that have brought politics together, like Sammy Rodriguez, like Gabriel Sanchez Salguero, uh, like uh, here locally, um, uh, Jack Miranda. We have figures, uh, but some of these. Um, some of these uh, figures are uh, we don't see a continuing, and I one of the things that I hope for in the new Pentecostal movement tradition, etc., is that we could actually have more of that. You know, uh, I would uh, one of the things I'm excited about with Clue is that I get to focus a little bit and more into having local Latino pastors to help them to see the value of organizing with their Pentecostal faith. Yeah, I'm wondering how much of also the current uh, policies that have been enacted uh, against undocumented and immigrant communities, the the uptick in deportations and and, and the you know the increase of the detention industrial complex. Uh, you know, here I'm thinking of Pastor Hugo Gomez and uh, Pastor Allen. Uh, Altamirano, these these figures who were these were religious leaders in their community, and they're confronted with the social and the political issues that come searching for them, and then the need to engage. And I'm wondering if you're 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 right. I think that there is this new generational element that is still is a burgeoning force of activism that could certainly offer a new insight to Pentecostal tradition and Latinx evangelicalism altogether. But there's also this, the force that is happening at, at the front doors of, of churches is that it's coming for you. And then the, the reaction to it. And I'm wondering how, how much of the hunger strike, and here I'm thinking of, the recent hunger strike that you were uh, you participated in in Los Angeles, and this had to do with the Adelanto Detention Center and the outbreaks of uh, COVID-19 among the detainees. I'm wondering if you could describe a bit about that context, how how the Latino faith communities got involved, and what 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 was new to that movement that you uh, are excited about, I'd like to maybe describe. Yeah, I think um, so. Just like you were saying that um, it started out with, um, so Guillermo Torres, because I work more in Orange County, Guillermo spends more time in LA and anything related to Adelanto, he's just out there and he kind of, he works more with the detainees and their families. And for a while, he's been working with a group of uh, mothers and daughters and wives of, of detainees and families that are trying to get uh, their their um, their family members free. And um, there was 
because of COVID and the anxiety out of that, and because we've seen that uh, uh, like Pastor Allen and Pastor Hugo were not being released and, and Pastor Hugo is a, is a little older, he's around his 70s. And, and Allen has like some, uh, some uh, Pastor Allen has some uh, medical conditions that he needs to be treated for, but being in, in detention and being uh, as there is a COVID outbreak, his his family continue to get more and more desperate. And and and, and the women, hermano, the women and the, the wives, daughters, and um, the women from these churches organized and said, "We're going to do something about it." And if that's not Pentecostal, I don't know what is. To know that las hermanas, when they're fed up and they need, they want to see action, that's exactly what we see in the Pentecostal churches. We see that the hermanas and the women, when they get together, things move. And this is exactly what happened. They told Guillermo, they said, Guillermo, we want to do a fast. We need, we need to do something. We, we need to. And so Guillermo, understanding the context of what it means, he moved it to what we know now as a hunger strike. Now, it's the same thing. This is... This is not new. We know that Cesar Chavez started out a lot of his things as a pilgrimage, but because in the media, you know, we, we as a fast, but it looked as a pilgrimage, right? We understand that sometimes to communicate uh, to a broader audience, we need to, you know, understand the messaging. But it was a fast, hermano. It was nothing more than just oración and fasting and praying. And they decided they wanted to do it for five-day fast. They decided that they were going to sleep outside in tents in Los Angeles, in downtown Los Angeles, outside of the uh, huge federal building outside in Los Angeles, so that they could know that their presence was felt. Um, every day, they had vigilias. They had Bible studies. They woke up at 3 in the morning to pray against the building, to pray for the authorities, to pray for David Marin, the, the, the director of field uh, director for Los Angeles of ICE. Um, they would invite pastors to come and preach and to come and share a word, to share a prayer. I invited my parents to come out there. And we had just, you know, just like we just like you would do, uh, like we would see in Pentecostal churches. We set up a, a mic. I brought my guitar. I The only songs that I knew, I'm not much of a, a guitar player or a singer. I'm not much of a worship leader. But whatever I knew, the coritos that I knew served me really well, singing about faith and hope in the, in the trials. He, one of the songs that I always carry with me is Un Dia La Vez. Uh, and I, and that's the, that song always touches me, even though I got it from Los Tigres del Norte. I got it also from the Pentecostal tradition. Uh, it, it's always been a song that has touched me and it just continues to speak of our of that every day because every day we didn't we didn't eat anything we were under a hot sun we were in the tents i had to go hide behind trash cans so that i could plug in our phones you know we had to do what we needed to do and that but the hermanas were the ones that organized it and um uh, they were pastoras as well so their husbands were all there were pastors but they were also considered pastoras and uh, they would invite the hermanas to come. They would uh, they would invite the churches to come in the evening. So see, we would have two, three-hour vigilias every night. We would have people come over and sit in the streets and hear preaching right there in the streets of L.A. Uh, it, there was nothing more like I felt at home than, than there because it was very familiar. You know, all we needed was the tamales or all we needed was the food that usually comes after the champurrado. But because there was a fast, they would bring us water and some Gatorades maybe and some teas and some electrolytes because that's all we could consume at that time. But there was no difference. You would tell no difference if you would just listen by the same songs, the same preaching, the same uh, 
like out loud, broad, um, bold prayers that the hermanos would pray, a, a lot of them just knew that we were praying for their loved ones to be released. And the again, the prayers, the continuing prayers of a Pentecostal are are wild prayers. These are prayers that uh, that we believe God to do miraculous things. Pentecostal, we believe in miracles and we believe to see them as they are. And if, if one of the miracles is like release abolition of ice and release the detainees and all that, you, those are like very radical things to pray for, even for Christians, even for moderates. They don't want to talk about abolish ice. They don't want to talk about open borders, right? But for some reason, conservative Pentecostals are the ones that are preaching this and praying this. And these are the hermanas that are doing it. So I was witness to that. I woke up at three in the morning watching all the hermanas wake up and, and, and continue to pray. And it reminded me of, of Mary's and the disciples that went to Jesus early in the morning because that's how they found it. And again, oh, this is why I, I, I glean so much from my formation as um, in, the, in, the, in the church because those were, I saw the exact same thing in the streets. So there's not, I would say to those that are interested out there of what, what does it look like to, you know, coming from a Pentecostal tradition and going into activism, it's no different. We are continuing to trust God with our lives. We are calling for justice, just like Jesus did. And we're using what uh, the tools that we have in the church and we're just applying it outside of the church walls. And I, I, and that's a discovery for me that has helped me in the kind of activism that I'm doing. And it, it was reported in the press that a, a federal judge in Los Angeles ordered the immediate reduction of the population of the Adelanto Ice Processing Center. Uh, and I'm wondering what was the reaction uh, from the hermanas and the community when, when that was issued, that, that judgment? And I, that was, I mean, it was a victory. It is a victory in a sense because they released uh, about 300 people. They were starting to release about 300 people and slowly releasing them daily. Uh, and so we're very busy right now trying to find them uh, them a place to stay and or trying to locate their families to release them or to, to receive them. Uh, but here is the here's the clincher. The, the, the two pastors, Pastor Hugo and Pastor Alan, have not been released yet. Uh, and, and part of the thing, uh, part of this, uh, the kind of uh, the double-edged sword is that uh, uh, they, they, those that were, we were calling for those that are most vulnerable to be released. Uh, and so there was, there was testing for COVID. And um, for a long time, like Pastor Allen was not uh, having symptoms of COVID. Uh, but right towards the end when he was tested, a couple weeks later, uh, he was uh, diagnosed with having COVID. And so all the so so there's they're still there. We're still trying to advocate for them. We're still pushing through. Uh, one of the other fathers, uh, his name uh, is uh, Tapete. Uh, he was he was released, which is a huge victory. But again, it's it, it's just we got to continue to keep praying. And so they're still organizing to try to to try to make more efforts. But it's a victory because we're seeing people be released, especially vulnerable people. But um, but those that we're advocating for specifically are still there. And so the fight still continues. But again, that's the challenge that we're, we're facing up against right now. But that is a victory. Yeah, when you think of uh, immigration detention, what happens is that the notion of criminalization comes to the fore in mainstream media. And so the combination of somebody who is contracted COVID, but also is a uh, religious leader, these are, these are religious leaders, people who have uh, a network of, of, of faith 
people believing the Christian uh, communities that are supporting these detainees and not much is spoken about the faith of detainees and, and, and their commitment to their own religious tradition, their denomination as a, as a, a way, a source of strength. And I'm wondering if here, you, you know, you have these vigilias, uh, the, the, the vigils, the protests on the outside, but what's going on in the inside? How are Pastor Ugo, how, how, how is he drawing on his faith? How, how, what sort of religious organizing is happening in there that could also be a, a source of uh, encouragement for you who are trying to advocate on the outside? I mean, just to, just to think about keeping that faith inside of, the, of, a, of a situation like that, being away from your family, being in detention, uh, being in, a, uh, in, a, in an environment that is, 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 um, is bad for your life, for your health, um, just to keep the faith, to know that they still have faith, is is remarkable for me because it, it i know a lot of people oh i would i would think about myself well, how would i feel if i was if i was in, in imprisoned uh as as that so um to hear that their that their families are still communicating i think that's one of the sources for having for knowing that their faith is still alive because their families are still advocating and there's a hope there that is shared in the family and in the churches and uh, part of it is 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 i think what continues to see them the other thing is calling is they are pastors they were church or without church they know that they're meant to they they have a specific role in the body of christ and you know that any pastor that goes anywhere will pastor no matter what they're going to do bible they're going to pray for people they're going to counsel they're going to shepherd pastors will be pastors wherever they go you know you're one of them right you're you got the skills that you knew you learned um the skills that are inherent in you in your calling have are serving you in your in your role as a professor same in the situation of these pastors their their situation has changed but i know that they're they're leading bible studies they're praying for people they're counseling people they're walking through um in the faith with others i know that they're doing that and they're saving souls and they're doing it the way that they've been taught right but one thing i do know also is that their theology is nuanced they cannot, I know that their theology, their faith, the, their, the, what they've learned has been, has been expanded. The, the ideas that they've, uh, when it comes to uh, the ethics of, like you talked about criminalization, talked to uh, understanding how, that it, uh, how we as Latinos actually, or we get called uh, illegals, uh, right? Instead of addressing undocumented, that's another form of dehumanized criminalization um, for us. Because we don't call someone that gets a traffic ticket or someone that gets jaywalked, or, you know, we don't call them illegal just because they, you know, they paid their ticket or they did it. But for some reason, they criminalize immigrants that that cross an imaginary border and come into this land, and uh, all of a sudden now they're illegals. And so uh, that's why we use undocumented to really touch the cause. But but I know that their theology is much more nuanced and actually much more comprehensive. I know that they're reading scriptures a lot more differently. Um, I know that their their preaching and their counseling is a lot uh, more specific uh, now because they're not just dealing with their own things. I know they're hearing situations and stories from those that 
people that uh, have crossed, just not, not even crossed the border, but have been part of the caravanas from Central America of Haitian immigrants that have come from, from Haiti or those that or those that are coming from Africa. Um, uh, I've heard from uh, a release detainee, she's a Russian immigrant, and telling me that it's not the majority, yes, are, are those from Latin America and Central America, but there's a big group of black immigrants. There's a large group of Asian Chinese immigrants uh, that are that are detained in Adelanto. Um, and so how do you, so there's this multi-ethnic kind of uh, thing there, right? Race plays an important role. And, and she told me that when, uh, that they all kind of get together and do church, right? And so how do, how do Nigerians come and worship, right? They're a lot more lively. They say they're much more joyful. You know, what do Chinese Christians bring into that? You know, I, I would imagine that they're, that the, the faith of these pastors are being just blown away of what they're seeing God do in this place. Um, one of the things, and, and they're also uh, contextualizing their service, right? Pastors love to serve. And one of Jael um, Altamirano, the, the wife uh, of Alan Altamirano, started something very practical that they need, which is money for their commissary, money for them to get some, some sort of food and some sort of items. And the only way that they could get them is to pay through commissary, which is kind of like this, this little store or whatever to, through the detention center so that they could get it. And, uh, and, and she set up this, this GoFundMe or this, this account so that people could donate to, donate to that and to, so that they could buy their things. They're not, they're, they can't make money in there. So they need to depend on these things. So so that's one of the ways that we're supporting them and we're, uh, that we're trying to help. And so uh, that's spreading the wealth. You know, that's, that's kind of mm -hmm. what we, we're, we're, we're doing. Pastors are always going to be pastors. And mm -hmm. I think I know that not only is their faith um, being challenged, but it's expanding. And that's one of the things that I know that I, when they get released, uh, Primero Dios, uh, we know that they're going to be a lot more equipped to address uh, uh, um, faith and politics and, and what they've experienced there. Um, so I'm, and I know that we as uh, scholars and those that are studying this are going to just, we're going to get so much from their testimony, mm -hmm. even though it's a huge sacrifice uh, to ask of them to, to share that. But I know God is with them. And, and, and that, that alone uh, helps me to understand that they're not only in good hands, but they're doing what they were called to do. Mm -hmm. which was to pastor. Mm -hmm. A last question here. I wanted to just piggyback a little bit on what you were talking about and the label of illegal and the criminalizing name calling that's often given to brown and black bodied people. There's the other side of it and how we understand religious leaders, how we understand activists, the, the same skepticism, if you will, when it comes to Latinx leadership, whether it be in politics or in a religious domain, church context, ministry context, what some call the imposter syndrome. And, and I'm wondering if how do you assert yourself, right? You're engaged in this work of immigration justice. First off, not that this is not a dominant part of the conversation when it comes to immigration activism, the, the notion of faith. It sort of always comes in as a, the last element in the conversation, but you're really bringing it to the fore. Uh, you're also bringing your own identity to the fore, and it's 
breaking a lot of stereotypes about what we understand to be a legitimate activist, right? A legitimate faith leader. And I'm wondering if you could just describe how you've had to counter some of those stereotypes, but also have seen people embrace the faith element who are perhaps not religiously motivated or doesn't, they don't have any sort of faith influence as part of the work, the activist work they're doing. And I'm wondering if you could comment just a bit on, on that dynamic. I appreciate you asking that because that's one of the most challenging aspects of the work that I do is to reconcile my faith in a space where it, my faith is, is uh, considered a, um, a liability, right? Especially in a world, uh, in, in progressive circles, you get a little bit more um, uh, strict on politically correctness or making sure that we're inclusive. And so there's a lot, a little bit more attention to making sure that, um, that we include everyone. And so uh, if you're coming from a tradition, like a Christian tradition, specifically a Christian as a dominant uh, religion here in the U.S., uh, there has to be a sort of sensitivity to other faiths that are marginalized um, in the interfaith sections. But and so there is that, in a sense, guilt, right? Even even if I say I'm a Pentecostal or evangelical, um, that is already kind of shutting me off from a lot of conversations or disinviting me from a lot of meetings or painting me a certain way, which is understandable. Because you know, I myself, right when Trump got president, I was calling myself post-evangelical. I did not want to be an evangelical. And we're, we're seeing in live how historically we've seen evangelicalism just become what it is. And I think um, uh, it's fair, but it's something I couldn't run away. But one of the one of the experiences that I just recently had earlier this year, because I was brother, I was completely just feeling like crap uh, about how I was organizing. I was just because I was so inexperienced and I wasn't doing well. And I, I just felt I, that that. Um, uh, you called an imposter syndrome really came in. I'm like, I don't have the right language. I don't have the experience. I don't have the connections. You know, I, I, I only have this or I could only do this. Right. All I know is churches. All I know is theology or all I know is this. Right. And and I was sitting with uh, I was having a conversation with um, an experienced organizer. Her name is Karen Hernandez. She is a uh, uh, works with Chirla, the you know, coalition for human uh, for human uh immigrant uh immigrant human rights in los angeles and so her and i were just having a conversation and she's uh she wouldn't consider herself a person of uh, organized religion she did grow up a mexican-american and she grew up in the catholic church uh she she has an interest in it uh, but it's more typically kind of uh culturally uh identifying as a catholic and she was asked, she was invited uh, because of the work we would partner together. And she was invited to be to 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 be highlighted as as one of the organizers uh, in South Orange County um, in an interfaith setting. And so they were they were going to ask her to talk about uh, what it means to be a public witness. And so she was freaking out. She was David. They were having this public witness thing. And there she's like, David, what does public witness mean? What? I have no idea. This is church talk. We're hanging out with um pentecostals and anglicans and uh, what, what does this all mean y'all thought you're all just christian and and so she was freaking out because she she didn't know what to expect and i i and i, I come from that tradition and uh, and so i sat her down i'm like okay well she karen works with chirla which does a lot of legal services and she does a lot of the outreach and education and so i told her 
So, so public witness, I told Karen, I kind of painted the picture. And this is where creativity and our theology and our practice, we need to be better. We, we need to continue to paint different pictures to different people. Uh, and so one of the things that I showed her what a public witness is, is like, think about it as a press conference. And I said, as a, in a press conference, you have a central message that you want to connect uh, publicly the, of an injustice that, that you have seen. And so you call the press out. You, you put a podium and you, you give the message, a strong message publicly about your stance of the injustice that you see. And this is in order to further the narrative of the injustice so we could see this justice be done right. And I told her, as people of faith, uh, we, use, we use this idea of public witness because we, can, we publicly have a stance and, and we, we call out an injustice and we use our faith to call it out. We use uh, whatever moral authority, as Martin Luther King would say, we use the moral authority to understand that, uh, that our faith community, we're calling it out. So a public witness is exactly what a press conference would be. We would call out the injustices by God, knowing that there is dehumanization happening for immigrants. We know that that is against the law of God, that is against our faith, and we are publicly uh, denouncing that. And we're calling it in our language uh, not as evil and as sin because it's against God. And so I was making these connections. I was translating some things for her. And I could see like the tears were just coming down her eyes because she was finally connecting this faith that she knew, connecting it to the work that she's always been doing. I'm like, Karen, it's the same thing. It's a press conference. But we're just instead of us standing on the Constitution and on human rights uh, legislation and on and, and propositions, we're standing on the word of God. We're standing on our, ethic, our our faith ethics. We're standing on our traditions, knowing that this is against who we are. So we're publicly claiming that this is not who we are. This is not who we this is not the God we love and we worship. And so we're calling it out for what it is. It's exactly what a press conference is. And you, I could see like the eyes open up her, to her. She, she really accepted that. And she saw the connections, the intersections of her faith and her activism come together. And for me, that was such a powerful moment because I got to use my theology degree, uh, right? Feeling like I couldn't use my church background, what I learned in the church, how I learned how to, to, to connect the story of God to, the, to, to our story. I, I, I helped paint a picture for Karen to be confident that she didn't need to learn these doctrines so that she could be part of this meeting. No, that she just needed to connect uh, her faith and, and, and her morality and, and trust a community that's about that too. Uh, that she's part of the community, right? We, we Sometimes as religious people, we, we try to exclude people from the church or exclude them for whatever reason. Uh, but the invitation and the inclusion that sometimes that we can do, or at least making the intersections, making the parallels and putting these uh, these images together so that someone can see the perspective and, and join in that narrative was enough for her to feel more confident and to even go back um, to to her tradition uh, and and gain uh, a lot of strength and confidence from that. So that's one of, that's one of the things that really impacted me uh, earlier this year. And her and I uh, have been really more and more talking about how faith and, and and the activism that we do is actually more related than we than we think it is. Mm -hmm. Well, we want to thank you, David Jaimes, for taking the time to be with us on this podcast series, Latinx Activism in the Borderlands. You have reminded us of the importance of faith as an integral part of the immigrant communities 
that are here in the U.S. and in this hemisphere. And in order for really us to adequately address the justice issues that immigrant communities face needs to be an integral part of our discussion, our engagement, our conversation, the narrative, activism without faith that addressing uh, immigrant uh, communities inadvertently ascribes them to just the social and the political, but they're so much more than that. And you remind us of the importance of faith leaders as being part of, being part of the coalition of immigration justice and the importance of their presence, their prayers, Bible studies, the songs, vigilias, ayunos, those are all important parts of getting this ultimate goal, right? And that is to, as you mentioned, we're talking about abolish ICE, we're talking about the liberation of people who have been detained unjustly. So we thank you for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Thank you for your time.